This is Financial Standard, the definitive source of news, thought leadership and analysis for Australian wealth management professionals. Financial Standard. Take the lead. Welcome to the Financial Standard Podcast. I'm your host and Managing Editor of FS Sustainability, Rachel Allenbackis. In this episode, brought to you by MFS Investment Management, we'll be discussing what integration of environmental, social and governance-related information means for fixed-income portfolios. We'll also delve into how ESG information can be material to fixed income investment selection, as well as explore the strengths and challenges of finding transparent, comparable, and meaningful ESG data relevant to fixed income securities. MFS Fixed Income Research Analyst Mahesh Jayakumar explains how his company finds and applies ESG data to fixed income decisions. If you think about the fact that we're, as I mentioned, we're depending on our um, credit analysts to to carry out the core function of ESG integration. And when you think about that, what comes to mind is materiality, which is what is the most important ESG factor I need to think about that's particular to my particular sector, industry, company, et cetera. So one of the, one of the goals that I have is to make sure that our analysts have the access to the information in terms of what is material for a given company, as well as choosing the right material factors, if you will. So my goal is to collaborate with them in terms of identifying those material factors, ensuring that we're using the right data and metrics uh, to to then connect the material factors back to, if you will, the financial factors in terms of making the investment decision on a particular company or issuer for that matter, because in fixed income, as you know, it's an extremely um, heterogeneous asset class where you have multiple parts of fixed income, including, you know, corporate bonds, bonds issued by governments, aka sovereign bonds. You have sub-sovereigns that are issued by, you know, uh, smaller states or municipalities within a particular country, and you also have um, securitized bonds that have some sort of collateral backing the cash flows in a bond. So, not only is it important to identify materiality. In, in each of those sectors and, and how to think about the framework for integrating ESG, but also then deep dive into sourcing data uh, that's particular to each of those subsectors, if you will. That leads me to your second part, which is, hey, where do we go gather data? So at MFS, we use a mix of ESG data and sustainability data directly from the issuer itself. So you can imagine a company has a sustainability report or a corporate uh, corporate citizenship report where you can go and get an idea of both qualitative and quantitative metrics about the sustainability journey of a particular company. Third-party data vendors have historically been gathering the same data and then standardizing them, cleaning them up, and making them available to to investors and other users. So we also subscribe to third-party data vendors in order to get the same uh, the same data that might be available publicly, but more cleansed and more formatted and more comparable, if you will, between different issuers. And there's a variety of third-party data providers uh, in the market. And, and most recently, what's happened is because of a boom in demand for ESG data, you've had a lot of mergers uh, between multiple players. And so you're likely going to have a few 800-pound gorillas, if you will, in the market, uh, given the mergers that are taking place. And then the third source of data for us is, uh, you know, non, basically non-third-party vendors, non-company data in the form of investor consortiums and NGOs. So you can imagine there are various NGOs that focus on a particular ESG 
uh, issue and therefore specialize in gathering data about that particular ESG issue from, from many companies and then making that available to either signatories of that, of that consortium or, you know, in general, free to investors. It sounds as though you're accessing a wide source of information uh, for both the corporate and the sovereign side. How does that material that or that information then get uh, synthesized into the investment process? Um, and, and do material ESG impacts have different implications in a fixed income portfolio as opposed to other asset classes? It's a good question, Rachel. So let me answer the second question first, which is how do you think about the impact of materiality differently in fixed income compared to other asset classes. So what I would say is, if you think about equities and corporate bonds, they're typically issued by the same company or same issuer. So the ESG risks that might affect and be material to a stock of that company will also be material to bonds issued by that same company. So if there's a if there's a a water risk for a large beverage company or a brewer, that water risk exists as bondholders, just like you would as a stockholder, if you will. Now, the difference in, in, in between equities and fixed income happens to come from the question of timing. So you can imagine um, bonds are a decaying asset class. You own bonds to a certain maturity. It could be a short maturity up to three years. It could be an intermediate maturity up to 10 years, for example. Or you might have long bonds that are greater than 10 years, you know, 20 years, 30 years. There are some issuers who have issued 50-year bonds, for example. So it might happen that you have an issue that is material and a risk factor, but the timing of that impact is longer than the horizon of your bond holding, if you will. In that case, even if something is material and something can have impact, it might happen after the the bond has matured and is not a part of your portfolio, if you will. So that's where investors, fixed income investors, have to be careful in understanding both materiality and, and impact of the issue and timing of the issue compared to what I would say is our, our equity holders, where the timing or the time horizon is infinite. You know, it's as long as you hold the, the particular stock uh, as a shareholder in the company. Now, that's the big difference is, is, this, is this time input into, into uh, 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 the difference between uh, equities and fixed. Let, let's go in a little bit deeper again. The one area we haven't talked about yet um, are the ratings, uh, the ratings of ESG companies. Is it useful to use um, ratings providers on ESG grounds in the fixed income space? And I guess alternatively, um, do the current mainstream providers take enough ESG into consideration when coming to a view on credit worthiness as to be useful from MFS's perspective? Most ESG ratings data providers today are not necessarily focusing the ESG analysis, if you will, specific to a credit investor. Right? They're not saying, oh, here's my analysis and my ESG rating separately for an equity investor and separately for a credit investor. That's not typically when you look at third-party data provider ratings on companies. It's a single rating that's accessible to any type of investor, including an equity investor or fixed income investor. And that makes sense because when you think about sustainability issues, it's not specific to the bond uh, uh, or security being issued by this by this particular company. It's it's It has to do with the the ESG state at the entity level, at the company level itself, in terms of how this company conducts business, 
How does it treat its employees? How does it treat its customers? How does it treat its environment? So that's what you are, as an ESG analyst or a credit analyst using ESG data, you are looking at ESG, uh, you're, you're seeking ESG data that's that's at the at the entity level and not necessarily the security level. So, and that's and that's why you're not necessarily seeing data being necessarily tailored, if you will, to a credit investor versus a equity investor. Now, when you think about ESG ratings, as fundamental investors, we are not necessarily trying to exclude certain names in our portfolio that don't meet a ratings threshold. And, and the reason for this is very simple, because if you think about the fact that typically ESG ratings reflect the past and, and maybe history in terms of what's happened to a company from a sustainability journey perspective, they may reflect forward-looking information, but not all the time. So if you are an investor like us, which wants to take advantage of an improving ESG story, aka ESG momentum, right? As you think about an improving ESG story, even if the state today is a very poor ESG score, you can dig in, understand, analyze, engage with the company, and, and figure out what a company is doing to basically fix maybe the issues that they may have had in the past and what are they doing to rectify that and move forward from a sustainability perspective. And you want to take advantage of those names and hold them in your in your portfolio, even if they have a very poor ESG rating. So that's the reason why we are not necessarily using ESG ratings to make a decision on whether to hold something or not. It's it's an, Look, it's an interesting conversation and an evolving conversation, I feel, particularly in the fixed income space. Um, but let's, again, let's turn even further to a particular subset of the fixed income space where E and S are specifically linked. Um, I'm talking about sustainable bonds. So that full spectrum between sort of green bonds, sustainability linked bonds, social bonds, um, and even impact bonds. I'm glad you asked, why are these important? How do they, what is the role in a portfolio? So at a, at a you can imagine at MFS, we don't have necessarily dedicated theme bond uh, uh, portfolios that are pure play theme bond portfolios. The idea at MFS is to integrate ESG and, and integrate sustainability into all our products, into all our family of products and all our mainstream funds, if you will, or, or separately managed accounts that we manage for our, our, uh, our custom clients. So the idea is how to think about integration overall and not buy a particular bond just because it's a green bond having said that we own we own a tremendous amount of theme bonds both green social uh, and um, sustainable and slbs we own all four types of bonds in our mainstream portfolios and the reason we own them is for is for multiple reasons number one we have applied the same rigorous credit research process if you will that that looks at the business strategy of the firm that looks at the the relative value in terms of where the comp, the bonds are coming in from a spreads perspective. What is the liquidity of the bond? Are they a repeat issuer? What is happening with the 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 debt profile of this issuer? So we are using the same rigorous credit analysis on this bond, like we would for any other bond that's issued by uh, this by the issuer. But now the beauty is when you have green bonds, you also have this added if you will, this added green option that gives you demonstrating that the company is going to use this towards certain projects. So if pricing to non-green bonds is the same, then you have a free green option that is now embedded, if you will, in a green bond that's priced comparably to non-green bonds. And that's attractive to us also. So 
That's the reason why we continue to own these bonds and we will invest in these bonds, just like we will in, in non-green bonds while taking into account ESG risk at, at an issuer level. Mahesh Jayakumar, MFS Investment Management. So how do the third-party data providers find the ESG information that investors use when making investment decisions? And how useful are ESG ratings in a fixed-income portfolio? ISS Head of ESG for Australia and New Zealand, Julia Leskey, gives us a deeper understanding. With ratings, if we're specifically looking into ratings, um, you really need to to look at it in a, um, I guess, cascading manner. So rating is an overarching um, um, accumulated score um, and assessment of a company's overarching sustainability performance. So when we look into, so for our analysts, we obviously don't start with the rating. We start with a lot of different underlying indicators. So we, you need to think of it like a tree, if you like. So when we look into ratings, we look at environmental issues and social issues and governance issues. Um, under each of these, we have different themes and topics um, under which we then have specific indicators. These indicators get informed by the different parts of um, the, the, the company's activities. So we might have different industries, we might have different parts of activities that then trigger certain indicators that our analysts look at and, and um, assess. These assessments then feed up into a weighted accumulative um, assessment of a company. Um, the weightings, again, depend on the, on the activities of a company and the industries that a company is associated with. We then have what we call a performance score and then an overarching rating as well. Um, so we can, we can really then see different ways of looking at a company and have different lenses that we can apply. It sometimes feels like um, third-party data providers and ratings providers are the favorite punchy, punching bag at the moment, whether it's around greenwashing, whether about limitations of data and interpretations of data. What's the utility of having a third-party data provider and what are the limitations? Yes, I mean it, it's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, and um, and data providers and rating providers often then say, "Well, it's a it's a disclosure that's missing, so let's pass on the buck to others." But it is, it is part of the problem as well, right? Um, I mean, often we're seen as the solution, and it's nice that people look towards us to have all the answers to the missing pieces that are there. But we can simple reality is we can't make up data points, we can't make up information that's not there, that's not readily available. Really, our role is to collect the information that's there. We're the information information broker, if you like. We collect the information, we normalize it, and we present it in a comparative manner that investors can make use of it. Now, there are ways that certain data points can be estimated. Very classic example are carbon emissions. We have very good um, methodologies, very good methods where we can, where we can estimate um, for those companies that don't disclose. Now, often the estimates are higher and a lot of data providers do that. We lean on the, the side of caution. We, we, we're more likely to overestimate than underestimate, um, which itself can cause some trouble for, for specific portfolios. But at the same time, it also should lead as an, as an incentive to, to um, advocate for better disclosure or disclosure of actual emissions. And I think if, and if you look at it, the trouble we have collecting something comparatively easy, like greenhouse gas emissions, our analysis really looks into water use, waste. Um, we're looking into social um, indicators. We have diversity indicators. Um, it's another example where we have, for example, here in Australia, really good regulation for companies or corporates that have to disclose through the regulator. At the same time, these disclosures are only for operations in Australia, not globally. So how do we then extrapolate that? So there's a few challenges um, that are very well known in terms of data collection. 
Or is it possible to then extrapolate that across a global organization and global um, activities? Now, if we know the majority of activities are in a certain country, we have the disclosures, of course, we can make use of that. But if we know it's only 10% of operations, we're probably not going to use that data point. Are you assessing companies just as um, as individual entities, or is there an aspect by which you can integrate in um, sort of information about you know geographies, regions, sovereigns? Uh, we're sort of building up to this point where we're going to talk about fixed income, but I think sometimes um, there's this disparity between what companies report individually and what you know is going on um, at sort of a country or geography wide level. And I thought the modern slavery example is a, is a really good one for that. Yes, and it's an, an interesting topic that we're grappling with at the moment as well. So, so one of the things is, is that we have we have country ratings. So we don't only rate corporates, we also rate countries. Um, and we've just expanded that to essentially rate all countries where we have uh, accessible information and data points worldwide. Um, and um, we really can then see and, and, and also compare where does a company operate or what is going on in certain countries to then assess, to, to get a feel for on different social and environmental factors um, that are happening in a country. When we look into a company as such in our rating, um, we, we do look, okay, what is the risk in terms of their different actual operations uh, and consider that. And then within, within um, if we go back to the example of modern slavery, one of the big pieces of research that we have done here is really look into countries of operations because where, where does a company really have, where's the footprint um, and, and does that footprint mean that there might be a higher risk of modern slavery, for example, was a really big important part of, of that research. So connecting those different um, locations, be it country or on an asset level, right, is a very big topic for us um, and, and really under, better understanding how can we do that and how can we connect them. And I think um, as part of our modern slavery work, there's a very first um, visible step um, for everyone to see what you can do and how you can connect those two pieces of information to be quite powerful, right? Um, now, talking about countries of operations and places of operations, it sounds all very simple and very logical to apply that on a data set. Um, but the devil is always in the detail, right? Um, so when do you count someone as operating in a specific country? What do you consider an asset that that is a risk or, or beca could become a risk that you want to be able to identify? Um, how do you do that? So there's a lot of methodology and um, sort of defining um, work that needs to be done. Um, where do we draw the line? A classic example that we've always debated about, and I remember that when I first started as an analyst, um, if you're looking at the difference of um, oil and gas companies, for example, where we have a lot of setups where there's minority stakes in certain um, oil and gas wells, and whether or not you count that as an operation or not. Whereas with other countries, uh, companies, if you had a 5% stake, somewhere in a, a firm, you probably wouldn't count that as a material exposure, whereas with oil and gas, a lot of times, or some people argue, those small stakes, it already is a significant exposure, especially if we're looking at some of the exploration companies here. There's, their whole business is set up in a way that you explore, you then start to exploit, but then you sell your, the majority stake to a production oil and gas firm, but you continue to hold a small minority stake. Now, should those still be viewed as risky assets, yes or no, from an ESG perspective across different topics? 
Um, so, so there are some of the grey areas that make our work interesting and um, some of the conversations um, interesting that, that often gets underappreciated when you say, well, I just want to know where they operate and want to be able to see where I can place all these things. But it is definitely, I think, in terms of research and data, it is the next boundary that is really being pushed and um, is being expected to be solved. It hasn't yet been solved very elegantly. Do you get into discussions with clients about sort of the impact and the utility of different ESG metrics um, for use on companies if you're looking at it from a, a corporate bond issuer versus an equity holding position? Or is data data and it just matters how the user is going to use it? There's a lot to say around that, right? Um, so, so I think for us, I mean, yes, of course, data is data, but I think and how the and the user needs to use it the way they 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 want to use it. But um, we're also here to help our clients to to dissect it. And I think for um, bond issuers um, in particular, there's a few questions that sometimes pop up that are quite interesting, right? I mean. If you want to apply um, a ethical screen or do no significant harm screen, for example, for your bonds, um, you apply data fairly pretty much the same way because you look at a corporate issuer um, and you decide other activities that are um, contravening my, my policies and then it becomes a yes or no answer before you actually invest, right? Um, if you're looking from an ESG integration perspective, similarly, you make use of ESG data to help you in your assessments of is this bond worthy for me to invest? The big discussion, and again, it's a very big discussion in the ESG data world or, or research provider world is mapping. How do you map or can you, when is it okay to map a rating from the parent entity onto the different issuances that they have? Now, if it's a plain vanilla bond from a publicly listed company, that's fairly straightforward. Um, then the next question becomes coverage. How do we identify coverage for in fixed income issuers that are not on in typically um, in equity portfolios? And then that becomes more of a, um, research organization perspective of where and how do we expand our coverage to cover those issuers because we can't map them based on our existing coverage. When it comes to green bonds, transi transition bonds, sustainability bonds and the like, it becomes a lot more complicated, right? Because at that point, and we have clients who have quite strict um, um, screens, um, they apply those for their bonds and for their equities. Um, but then a company that normally would you would not invest in as a green vanilla bond, but they now have a green bond where they're firmly investing in renewable energy or something that helps that that you, is something that you want to support as your investor. Now, where do you stand? You've been listening to Mahesh Jayakumar and Julia Lesky. One note. ISS is both the owner of both ISS ESG and Rainmaker Information, publisher of the Financial Standard podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion, which was brought to you by MFS Investment Management. Please remember, you can subscribe to Financial Standard wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Thanks for listening to this Financial Standard podcast. For more information, visit financialstandard.com.au. Please keep in mind that the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature and does not consider personal circumstances. Reliance should not be placed on any content without further independent financial research and advice. 